Okay, the reading this morning is from Exodus chapter 3. And if you find the Bible under the seat in front of you, you'll find that it starts on page 57. And uh, it's right at the bottom of page 57. Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that through the, though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this Moses hid his face, because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. Go, assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. 
So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed toward this people, so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Be in church. Uh, and uh, we've already prayed, so if you can have your Bibles or keep them open at Exodus chapter 3, that would be excellent. And I'll get straight underway by asking you a question. Have you ever wanted to change your name? Hmm. I had a friend of mine, and her surname was Yeomans, which sounds quite distinguished, but she married a fellow called Smith, and she thought that was a bit of a downgrade. Sorry to all the Smiths among us here this morning. Maybe you're happy with your name, but what if your name was Malat or Bryant or even Bradman? Apparently, the son of Donald Bradman, the greatest cricketer who ever lived, just changed his name, his surname slightly from Bradman to Bradnum, hoping that that slight tweak would give him a little bit of breathing space so that he could come out from under the shadows of his famous father. Well, maybe if you lived in this town in Wales... It's the longest town name in the world. You might think about changing names. Or you might just move along to Holyhead, the next village. <laughs> I wondered about changing my name. Petty. It's uh, got some kind of French derivation and it means small and unimportant. <laughs> and uh, I think it's just a little too close to the mark, don't you? <laughs> so I, I'd fancy a slightly stronger name. I mean, it wouldn't have to be kind of... Armstrong or Lionheart or anything like that, just something a little grander than Petty would be nice. <laughs> uh, I was chatting to one of the guys from 8 o'clock and he said he worked with a fellow whose surname was Fuller Love <laughs> and he changed it to Savage. <laughs> I'm sure you've got some funny name stories. thing is, it's a hassle, isn't it, to change your name? You've got to fill out a form and <laughs> everything like that. Hardly worth the bother unless it's an extreme case like Balat or Bryant or Bradman. And we tend not to associate people's names with their characters for good or ill. It's just the name that you're born with, isn't it? But today in Exodus chapter 3, Moses asks God a question. It's a most remarkable question, and the question is, what is your name? And it's a remarkable question because God's name is all about his nature, It's about his character, and that makes all the world of difference to Moses and God's people of old, but it continues to make a world of difference to us, his people today. What is the name of God? What difference does it make? Well, that's the the key question that we are unpacking today. Uh, Um, Now, listen, we're in the... That's a bit rude, wasn't it? Now, listen... Uh, We're in the second week of our uh, series called Exit on the book of Exodus, and we called the series Exit because that's what Exodus means. It means to exit, to depart. It means kind of way out. And uh, Neville Naden very helpfully last week showed us how the story of Exodus, this this great story, this great exit in the Old Testament, is not kind of standalone but it's part of an unfolding um, story that began with the very creation of the world where God said to the first humans in Eden, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth. And by the time we reach Exodus chapter 1, we discover that though Joseph and that whole generation had died, the Israelites were increasingly fruitful. They had multiplied greatly. They'd increased in numbers and become so numerous 
the land was filled with them. So you see that connection and that fulfillment already. God had promised to Abraham that he would make a great nation out of his descendants. And we see that's already started to happen in the opening chapters of the book of Exodus. But you might remember from the story or from last week that Pharaoh's attempts to kind of control the Israelite multiplication, first by harsh slave labor, really backfired. And the more the people were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. Then you remember that Pharaoh's next strategy of getting the Hebrew, that is the Israelite midwives, to kill all the baby boys at birth. I mean, just think about that on Mother's Day. How that backfired again. And the midwives respond to Pharaoh's complaint, why have you let these boys live? (laughs) With a fair amount of creative disobedience. I mean, their reply, basically, that the Hebrew women aren't as soft as the Egyptian women. It's pretty tongue-in-cheek, but they must have said it pretty hard in mouth, mustn't they? But they managed to not only disobey Pharaoh, they managed to mock him in the process, which is always fun, and get away with it. And God's purposes prevail as we read that God was kind to the midwives and the people just continued to increase and become even more numerous. But then when Pharaoh makes his next move, instructing all the Hebrew baby boys to be thrown into the River Nile, The lens narrows down to the birth of a single boy whose name is Moses. And his mother keeps him as long as she could before placing him in a basket. And literally the word there is ark, places him in an ark. And we see that just like Noah, God provides salvation from the watery chaos through an ark. And Moses is picked up by Pharaoh's daughter, who then arranges for Moses' mum to nurse him with pay. Now make the connections. If you were a first reader of this story, a first Hebrew reader, you would have snickered with delight. Pharaoh's own daughter disobeys him, picks up the tab for Moses' mum to nurse her own son, the very son that Pharaoh wanted dead. There's a delicious kind of irony and trickery in there, and you couldn't make this sort of stuff up. And then, of course, as, as he grew up, Moses was taken into the royal palace, the royal family, And he was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians so that in the great providence of God, Moses is being prepared to oppose Pharaoh by Pharaoh and at Pharaoh's expense. You've got to snicker or giggle or something. But as we end chapter 2, there are two significant problems at that kind of very broad level. The people of God are numerous, but they remain groaning under their slavery in a foreign land called Egypt. And then at the kind of individual level, this chap Moses, who we really thought might have been someone special, given his kind of providential delivery from death and his preparation in all things Egyptian, we thought he was going to be special, but he's out of the picture. You know, he's tending sheep in Midian way out east, where he fled after killing an Egyptian. And so that's the tension that is set up at the end of chapter 2. That is the scenario in which we learn the name of God and in which we learn what it means. Now, to be honest, as we kind of head into Exodus chapter 3, I hope you have it open there in front of you. We wonder how this bizarre sight of a burning bush that doesn't burn up is going to resolve that tension. You know, Moses is kind of doing his shepherding thing for his father-in-law on the east side of Mount Horeb. Now, that's the exact same mountain as Mount Sinai. It's going to be very significant later on. It's most likely at a place called Jebel Musa that looks like this, 
which to this day the travelling Bedouin tribespeople call Moses Mountain. Here in Exodus chapter 3, it's called the Mountain of God. And as we read uh, just earlier, when Moses checks out this bizarre phenomena, it's none other than God himself who speaks from the bush and identifies himself as the God of his forefathers, of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. I mean, it's, it's nothing short of a God appearance, a visible manifestation of the invisible God, a brief encounter Moses has with the Holy and Living One. And so you'll have a look in verse 6 there. Naturally, he's afraid. <laughs> Fair enough. And as the conversation develops, Moses learns something that he must have had you know, an inkling of, though perhaps he'd buried it in the past, that he would be God's representative to bring the people out of Egypt. Moses is the man to lead the Israelites, the people of God, out of slavery into the land that God had promised them. And then you suspect that his very holy and reverent fear before God becomes a very practical fear at the task ahead of him. We'll look at that in a moment. But Moses asks that most important question in verse 13. Read along with me, would you? Verse 13. Suppose I go to the Israelites, as in the, the elders, to convince them. Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? Well, what indeed? What's in a name, hey? And why does Moses ask that question? You can gather, can't you, that he's after more than just information. He wants to know the name of God because the name of God equals the very nature of God. But God's answer sounds a bit confusing, don't you think? Moses asks, God says in verse 14, I am who I am, or I will be what I will be, if you chase down the footnotes. In the original language of Hebrew, it sounds like the word Yahweh, and that's often depicted by four letters, Y-H-W-H. I am who I am, I will be what I will be. And when you write it out, four consonants and no vowels. And you're thinking to yourself, just go back to the slide of that Welsh town, I think I'd rather give that a go. What does this name of God mean? That name Yahweh, with its kind of audible connection to the name I am who I am is depicted in our English Bibles by the word Lord okay Lord all in capitals it's actually a different it means something different to just the regular word for Lord which means boss all in capital letters Lord and it means that God is a God of personal covenant faithfulness personal covenant faithfulness let's unpack that firstly faithfulness just after God tells Moses that his name is I am who I am he tells Moses to pass that on to the Israelites he says there in verse 15, have a look, and I want you to have a look in your Bibles, folks. You must do that. God also says to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, all in capitals, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. Think about that. Generation to generation forever. It's a long time. God is saying that his name does not change. This is my name forever. Now, in our family, we're rugby league fans. 
Okay, and uh, rugby league is one word. You should know that, rugby league. Now, uh, other people say you should follow rugby union, which is two words, rugby union, because they believe in union you get a better class of thug. <laughs> now, I'm like, why would you want a better class of thug? If you're going to have thugs, you may as well have the worst class of thugs. And we like the thugs of the Manly Warringah Sea Eagles in our household. And in fact, my youngest son, Austin, he's the biggest fan in the household. And uh, he's even had the jersey number of his favourite thug kind of shaved into his hair from time to time. So he once had number four uh, for Steve Maddai shaved into his head. That was his favourite thug. But the problem is that the name of his favourite player is always changing. You ask him who his favourite player was last year, it wasn't number four, Steve Maddai. It was number seven, Cherry Evans. And, and if you ask him this week the name of his favourite thug, I think it's Tom Trebojevic, but I don't really know, I can't be sure, because the names are always changing. You see, and, and humans are like that, aren't we? It's human nature, we're always changing. <laughs> Fairly fickle bunch. But the name of God is never changing, you see. I am who I am. I will be what I will be. And his name never changes because his nature never changes. You think about it, that name kind of suggests that God is eternal. He always exists in the present tense. I am who I am. Always existing self-sufficiently, never needing anything from anyone, able to give freely from within himself without ever diminishing his reserves, almost like the burning bush itself, forever burning, but never being consumed, never burning up. And friends, that's how you know that God will be faithful to his promises. It's because he doesn't change. He's not fickle. He's not flighty. He doesn't bow to fashion. He never becomes a has-been or a was. He will remain forever and is. He is not forgetful and he's not fading. He is a steadfast, rock-solid God of faithfulness for all time. And all that is caught up in his name. I am who I am, which he will be known from generation to generation. Now, it's not just faithfulness as the permanently living God, not just faithfulness, but covenant faithfulness. So again, in your Bibles, have a look with me, verse 15, closely. You see that God tells Moses that the Lord, that's this name, I am who I am, Yahweh, is the same as the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, the same God who promised Abraham way back in Genesis that he would have many descendants, well, it's the same God who makes a promise to Moses that he would bring those descendants out of Egypt, out of slavery, some 400 years later. The same God who hears their cries and says, I have forgotten you. I've remembered my covenant, my promises that I made with your forefather because he's the God of covenant faithfulness. And that's attached, embedded in his name, I am who I am. But he's not even just an imposing God of covenant faithfulness. He is a God of personal covenant faithfulness. In other words, not just God on high, but actually a God who will stoop down low. A God who is involved in the lives of his people. Just track the verbs with me in verses 7 and 8. Have a look. Verse 7. I have seen their misery. I have heard them crying out. I am concerned about them. And so in verse 8, what does he say? I have come down to rescue them from the Egyptians. 
Personal covenant faithfulness is what God's name means. And so what we find out really is that the name of God equals the nature of God. He's eternal, present, faithful to himself, a personal God of covenant faithfulness, true to the promises that he makes to his people, faithful to their cause. His name doesn't just mean he exists, you know, like I am, as in the great philosophers of history have taught us. His name means that he is active and he is committed and he is present with his people. That's what his name means and that's what he is like. Now, it is uh, very good and very useful and very important for us to know what the name of God means. But secondly, and quite quickly for us this morning, what difference does that make to Moses and to Israel? Especially for Moses. And you think about him, he, um, he really wants to be a spectator, you sense. Doesn't want to be a player. So God says to Moses, who seems to carve out a comfortable, a decent life, tending sheep in the desert, that he's going to go to the king of the most powerful nation on earth, and say, let my people go. Well, that's no small thing that God is asking Moses to do, and I sense that we feel for him in his unwillingness, like in verse 11 where he says, but who am I to go to Pharaoh to bring the people out? Or later in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, what if the Israelites don't believe me? What if they don't listen to me? Or even after God shows him a couple of miraculous signs in chapter 4 verse 10 where you think he ought to have been convinced he, he's like i'm not eloquent i've never been good with words i'm slow of speech my tongue gets tied i don't know what to say and you just think well moses he's he's a spectator and he's kind of saying lord just let someone else do it happy to watch don't really want to get involved and we feel for him and his pain and his nerves and his anxiety and his uncertainty of this great task before him, but he's forgotten something, hasn't he? He's forgotten that God is the God of covenant faithfulness, the one who says, I am who I am, and Moses, I am with you. And of course, that makes all the difference in the world. You would have seen this picture from a fair while back, very famous picture. In June 1989, in Tiananmen Square in Beijing in China, a bunch of students, in fact, a whole great gathering of students, led a pro-democracy demonstration in which the communist government didn't like. And so they sent in the army to break it up. And uh, you might recall seeing the, the vision of tanks, row upon row of armor-plated big guns rolling down Tiananmen Square. But in this um, really famous picture, there's a single Chinese student. You remember it, don't you? And you remember he steps out in front of a tank and then when the tank tries to get around him, he just steps in front of it again. And then the tank changes back that way and he just steps in front of it again. And the whole world watches on as this... Um, brave single student brings a whole column of armour-plated killing machines to a halt. So maybe it's not Moses how big and impressive you are. Maybe it's about the force who stands with you and who stands behind you. Maybe ordinary people can make a big difference if the God of personal covenant faithfulness stands with them, even if they have to head into the palace of the king of Egypt. 
even if there's someone like Moses. And for the people of Israel in slavery in Egypt, that I am who I am is God's name, means that he's not ignorant and he's not indifferent to their plight. It means they can trust God to use Moses to bring them out of Egypt, as unlikely as that sounds. And the question is, will they trust him to do that? Or will they want to take things into their own hands? Or will they crumble with fear? Well, we're going to see how they go in the coming weeks and when they demand the freedom to meet with God in the wilderness, where they see Pharaoh's already hardened his heart, even as early as chapter 3, where they see God strike the land with plagues, and where they see Pharaoh eventually relenting and letting them go. But friends, before we check their progress, it's worth us asking the question, what does the God of personal covenant faithfulness mean to us? I mean, sure, it makes a difference to Moses. God spoke to Moses. Sure, it makes a difference to Israel. God led him out of slavery. But what does the personal covenant faithfulness of God mean for us? Very glad you asked that question. Moses might be ancient, but God is not distant. You've heard Jesus say, I am the light of the world. Well, if you've heard that, you've heard Jesus quietly saying that you know the God of personal covenant faithfulness because Jesus is that very same God. You may say, God spoke to Moses in the middle of the desert. I can't hear him in this city. But when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, he's saying that if you know Jesus, you know the personal covenant faithfulness of God, Because you've seen it in Jesus, that God in visible form. You may say, I've not experienced the covenant faithfulness that's spoken of here in my life. But when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he's saying that if you know Jesus, you've experienced it. Yes, you have. You may say that the God who made these covenant promises to Abraham and acted upon them through Moses is unknown to me. But let me say, when Jesus quite unmistakably says in John chapter 8, before Abraham was even born, I am, Jesus is unmistakably saying that from the beginning, he is the very same God of personal covenant faithfulness, which means if you and I know Jesus, we know the covenant faithfulness of God. If you and I know Jesus, then we are part of the fulfillment of the promise that was made to Abraham that one of his descendants would bless all the people on earth. Well, it's happened through Jesus. You know Jesus? You're part of the reason that he used Moses to rescue his people from slavery. We are part of the reason why Jesus, who was descended physically from Abraham although who spiritually predated him, was nailed to a cross. If you know Jesus, you know the God of personal covenant faithfulness. And so actually the question is, how will we relate to him? Because we're unlikely to be leaders of resistance movements like Moses was, and it's always safer to locate ourselves in the trembling sandals of the Israelites. I mean, that's the better connection to draw. The truth is that we're all in need of salvation, like the children of Egypt, uh, children of Israel, not out of Egypt, but out of 
the spiritual slavery of our own sin and rebellion against God, and then the inevitable consequence of spiritual death. In other words, our natural position is slavery to both sin and death, but God came down in the person of Jesus to live among us, then to die sacrificially for us, to rescue us from those twin oppressors of sin and death. And his promise of delivery or salvation or rescue, it stands and it continues to stand because the one who stands behind it is this God of personal covenant faithfulness. His name is his nature, friends, and his nature is faithfulness to his promises. And if I can politely ask, if you don't yet trust in Christ, the great I am, what is holding you back today? Many of us here gathered are people who have been rescued from the eternal consequences of our sin and death, not because we're great, but because God is great. And of course we still experience their pain in our lives. Of course we do. But we're on our own exodus, aren't we? Our own exit towards a promised land, which is not in the Middle East, it's in heaven forever. But that can feel a long way off. But in this story of the burning bush where we learn the name of God... And in the person of Jesus, the visible incarnation of I am who I am, we understand that the fingerprints of God are all over the unfolding events in our lives. Of course the pain is real. Of course the uncertainty exists. But if we can just see the fingerprints of God over the events unfolding in our lives, our faith will be matured and it will be strengthened. And above all, in in good times and in bad, our faith will mature and it will grow if we can grasp the truth that is embedded in this name of God. I am who I am because his very nature assures us that he is with us, walking alongside us, very often walking ahead of us, always faithful to us as a matter of commitment to himself and his promises. He came down to rescue Israel And he came down in the person of Jesus to rescue us. And a lot of us can get preoccupied with our deficiencies or our abilities or our fears. That was certainly Moses' trap. But this passage urges us not to lean just into our own abilities, but to lean into the nature of God and into the work of his wonderful son. And friends, I invite you to do that today, to lean into the work of the son and in the nature of God. Of course, many of us are very practical people and we want to know what are we supposed to do. You know, I feel like I've got to do something. I want to be involved. And I guess if you know the personal covenant faithfulness of God, that will be a, that will be a prompt, won't it, to pray because you can appeal to his nature. Uh, it'll be a prompt to obey him because obedience is always a great expression of our prior trust in God and in his word and that he knows what's best for us. And so you might want to say no to a certain sin or you might want to say yes to a certain virtue or yes to a certain act of service. But I, I, you know, I think where this passage lands, I think the main application of this passage is for us just to stop and to get to listen and to get to see and to get to know the one whom we worship. That he is not some unknown deity, but a God who has always had a personal interest in his people. That means you and I. That he's not a God far away who's remote and unconcerned about us, but he is the one who sees, the one who hears, 
the one who is concerned for us, and ultimately the one who has come down to us in the person of his son. That is not fickle or flipsy-flopsy or tired or capable of tiring. He is the great I am, forever present and in the present, not fading, not forgetful and not changing. Now, when we started, we decided that for most of us, there's not much in our names, though some, in extreme cases, might have a reason to change them. But as we finish, if we know Jesus, then you and I are intimately acquainted with the name of God. It's written on our hearts. Will Moses and the Israelites trust in this name? Will Pharaoh bow down before it? Well, you'll have to come back next week to find out, won't you? But in the meantime, the question is whether you and I know this name and whether you and I are prepared to trust in it. I am who I am, says God. I will be what I will be. Let's pray to him now. Why don't you join me? Great God in heaven, we praise you for your name. I am who I am, and really we're praising you for your nature, that you are a God of personal covenant faithfulness, not tiring, not changing, not fading, not diminished. You always are, and you always act for your people. So help us as your people to trust in you that we might increasingly resemble the Lord Jesus who was both the great I am and the one who trusted you perfectly in his life. And we pray these things in his beautiful name. Amen.